0: We've got a pile of literature three inches deep um, on how they've destroyed landscape all over the world, wherever they've been. And and he said, we're going to run them out of Australia. And if you get mixed up with them, you're going to go down with them. And that was a hell of a threat. And they tried very, very hard to put me out of business.
1: G'day and welcome to episode 43 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie LaLeave. And today I'm very excited to bring Terry McCosker to your ears. I'll touch on a bit more about Terry in a second, but first I just wanted to thank today's sponsor. This episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast has been sponsored by LAWD, the Real Estate Land Specialists. With a national team with extensive experience, they are the leaders in land, agribusiness, water, and development. To find out more, you can go to their website, lawd.com.au. Over more than 50 years, Terry McCosker's work has been instrumental to challenging the status quo of farming in Australia, particularly looking at the relationship between farming and the natural environment. Over that time, I'm sure many things have changed, so I'm looking forward to uncovering more about what makes you tick, Terry, and where the passion and interest, I suppose, really came from and what the journey's been to where you are today. So, uh, welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Thanks, Ollie. Thanks for having me. I'd love to start off by... Yeah, understanding a little bit more from your perspective, just where what, what really drew you into agriculture? Were you born on the land or where, where yeah. did it come from?
0: Born and bred on the land. And, um, you know, when when you're born and bred on the land, you actually have an attachment to it. And um,
1: I think I have
0: uh, more of an Aboriginal view of land, and that is that, that we don't own it. We are simply custodians of it for a very short period of time. And our role in life is to pass it on in better condition than we found it. And um, and I guess that's been a philosophy of mine for a very long time.
1: And was that something that I suppose you picked up and learned along the way? Or was it something you picked up off your parents growing up?
0: It's probably a combination of both. I know that I got uh, my love of the land and agriculture from my mother um and then once i started going to high school and started studying agriculture i knew i'd found my place uh i'd gone from a student who couldn't pass anything to a student that was top of the class and um that was a bit of a revelation to me so I, i knew then that i'd found the right place to be um naturally i wanted to be back on the land and uh we only had a small dairy farm and when i put that concept to dad he said nope you None of you are coming back here. You go and get yourself a profession or a job and uh, and figure out how else you're going to work in agriculture.
1: And so where did that have you land? Was it, were you jackarooing in the early days or was it straight into study? And
0: Well, I, I actually left school and then worked on the dairy farm for a while um, and, and ran that for, it was probably only six months or so before I got a job with uh, DPI. And I went straight into Queensland DPI as a cadet in 1967 and um, it was a fantastic way to learn uh, because I then studied and worked at the same time and it was a marvelous organization uh, the five and a half thousand staff but a lot of experience and a lot of depth and a lot of really good basic knowledge there was a lot of research going on and happening you know in the 60s and 70s um, so it was a it was a wonderful place to actually learn the basics and and uh, and learn a heck of a lot. So I spent 11 years in uh, Queensland DPI, um, oh, Wow! four years working in the dairy industry, and then uh, uh, seven years working in the wet tropics uh, in the beef industry. And uh, yeah, I don't regret any of it, it was great.
1: Because then it was in your twenties that you ended up going and managing a farm as well, wasn't it? So you actually jumped on the other side of the fence?
0: Well, that's correct. I, Towards the end of my tenure at DPI, I just felt that I wasn't making a good enough contribution to agriculture. And uh, so I wanted to I wanted to get out. I actually went flying and I got my commercial pilot's license and I was about to go ag flying uh, when a job opportunity came up in the Northern Territory. And um, I had a three day interview for that job. And at the end of those three days, they said to me, well, you've got the job. And I said, well, I don't want it. And, um, they said, why not? I said, well, I, don't, I can't help you. You know, I've, firstly, I've never set foot on a property this scale and it was 800,000 acres. Um, I've never worked with a, with a herd of 12,000 cows. Um, I don't know these trees. I don't know these soils. I don't know these grasses. So I don't think I can help you. And um, they said to me something then that I've never ever forgotten. And they said, no, we want somebody who has no preconceived ideas. And you wouldn't believe how that paid off because I actually didn't know anything. Um, I had no existing paradigms. I had nothing to unlearn. And uh, I was confronted with an enormous range of problems. And I just basically went back to first principles and worked my way through them and come up with answers that were different to the answers that other people had come up with. And, um, And that really worked. It worked for them and it worked for me.
1: Did you so? Did you jump straight into? I'm I'm fascinated a three day job interview. How what happens there?
0: Uh, well, it was an American company, and I was interviewed by I think it was two or three executives from New York, um, and just you know how they do things is quite interesting. Uh, after I got the job, one night we were sitting down to dinner, and I just grabbed the salt and put it on my meal, and one of these really senior guys who was chief executive officer of a multi-billion dollar company in the US. And he just leaned across the table and said, if we were interviewing you for a job and you did that, you wouldn't get the job. And I said, what did I just do? He said, you salted your food before you tasted it. And I said, well, give me a bit of credit. I've been eating my wife's food for the last 10 years. So I got a fair idea whether I need salt or not. But that's the level to which they were, would go in interviewing people. And um, I didn't sort of know at the time I was under that level of scrutiny, but scrutiny, but um, it was, uh, was was a fascinating experience. And I love those people. Their their attitude to life was that there's no obstacles. There's nothing that we can't overcome. And I think that's, it's really from them that I learned that message, that um, if something needs doing, if something, Is not right then let's just get out there and fix it and and there's nothing that can't be fixed there's nothing you can't do if you put your mind to it Um,
1: do you find nearly with that philosophy of i suppose just getting things done has it led you to become unstuck or i suppose dissatisfied in in various roles as you are going through as monotony starts to creep in or have you always been able to keep things fairly exciting as you're going
0: I think I've always been able to keep things exciting because there's always new stuff and there's always things to learn and you're always making um, mistakes or what I call learning experiences, and and I think if you're not having a go and if you're not making mistakes then you're really unlikely to be learning, and and if you're not making mistakes then life's probably going to be pretty boring because you're not trying anything different, so I I guess I've always trying something different and um, and always striving to just you know, do what other, often what other people
1: think can't be done. Yeah. Proving people wrong. And so I'm fascinated too with your story of going, so you you had the the DPI piece in your early days, you then went on farm and now then you're a scientist by qualification. So what was the lure, I suppose? uh, Yeah, the lure, but also the decision-making between staying and having an impact on one farm or hopping outside the farm gate and going down that avenue.
0: I think uh, the reason for, for going was the challenge, uh, knowing absolutely nothing about that environment. And there were massive problems. They were losing a lot of cattle every year um, and uh, the, they were losing a lot of money. Um, so it was um, a, just a, just an enormous challenge and I didn't even know where to start. And that was interesting in itself in that I spent six months um, and at the end of looking for what their problems were, and at the end of that period, I said to the to the owners, I said, "Look, just sell up and get out of here. What you're trying to do is not working." And um, and I was quite happy to walk away from the job and have another go at something else. Uh, and they said, they just said, "No, we're not used to walking away from a problem. Um, give us an alternative." And I think I was 28 at the time, and just off the top of my head, I said, well, give me a million bucks in three years, and I'll sort it out for you. It was a throwaway line. (laughs) Um, And they just sat back and said, well, you better do it. And I thought, well, what have I just landed? (laughs) Uh, And and so I put together a research project for them um, to solve a lot of the problems that I'd seen in the first six months. And then... I had a really bad gut feeling about the research project and I'd put it together and, and it had gone off to New York to be approved, the budget to be approved. And, and then I said to one of the guys I was working with, who, was a, who had a master's in rangeland management from Texas A&M, I said to Cliff, there's something wrong with this. And he said, what? And I said, i got no idea. I said, I don't know, but my gut tells me this is wrong. Well, he said what are you going to do and i said well the only thing i know to do is i'll go back to queensland and i'll start in marieva and i'll hire a car and i'll drive all the way back down to brisbane and i'll talk to everybody in dpi and csiro that i know that knows something about pastures and production etc um, and see if i could figure it out by the time i got to brisbane i had it figured out and what made me figure it out was that every time I sat down with somebody, I had to explain my problems. And every time I explained them, they become clearer. And it wasn't that anybody actually said to me, put their finger on it and said, that's your issue, because their paradigms were similar to mine. Um, But it was that having to explain it over and over and over again, and the problems popped out and became really, really clear. So I went back to the station and um, Cliff said to me, what did you discover? And I I said, I discovered we've got to go 180 degrees from what I've just said. And um, he said, oh no. And so we sat down on my front lawn and argued for two days. And at the end of two days, I had him convinced that we needed to go 180 degrees away from where this company had been spending millions, from where all the research was pointed, from where all the technologies of the day were. And uh, only a few days after that, the guys from New York were arriving uh, to approve the first budget. So in the meantime, I sent them a telex and said, look, I've changed my mind. We actually have to go somewhere else. So they arrived at the station and I had about a six-page document prepared to explain a 180-degree change from last time I spoke to them. So they picked up the document, jumped in the car, and these three guys went back to Darwin and spent about four days there before they came back to the station trying to uh, find replacements for Cliff and myself because they thought we'd lost it. (laughs) So they came back down eventually and we were going to have it out. And uh, again, I can still recall this. We spent three days in the shed with a really big whiteboard. And over and over and over again, I went through what I discovered. And the end of three days I had them convinced that we needed to completely change. And that was the advantage of having no preconceived ideas. And so we went 180 degrees away from where they'd ever been. But where I wanted to go then had no technology. Um, and so we had to start from scratch. And I said to them, look, you know, I'm going to have to design a completely different research program to solve completely different problems. and. Uh, They said, just go ahead and do it. Um, So as a 28 year old, I was handed this unbelievable opportunity of a cattle station with 12,000 head, uh, basically an unlimited R&D budget and and problems to solve in the real world. And and over a four to five year period, uh, we actually solved every problem we set out to solve and many that we didn't know were there when we started. Uh, and completely revamped revamped production systems. And a lot of um, what we discovered through that process is now standard practice today in Northern Australia. Uh, so it was well worthwhile from an industry perspective. Um, so some of the breakthroughs, for example, were wet season supplementation. When i came up with that idea i was called an absolute idiot you know the problems are in your dry season that's when your animals die um but i worked out the problems were in the wet and when and then i had to design a supplement that could stand up to high rainfall for a limited period of time and uh we so we did that and and very quickly found that our problems were in the wet season and um So now, wet season supplementation is very common across northern Australia. Um, I was probably the first person in the Northern Territory to control mate. Um, So, that was in the late 70s, I started that. Um, There's probably a few people doing that now, but the whole mating systems have been tidied up a lot. Um, I did work on bull fertility. Um, You know, we used to use five, six, seven percent bull ratio, um, and I worked out we only needed three percent. And, uh, and that's pretty standard now uh, right across the industry. So there's a lot of stuff that we innovated with and did right from scratch um, that's now standard practice and that's uh, pretty rewarding to look back and see that now.
1: Yeah, i would bet. Far out. To be at the frontier of anything, let alone...
0: Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know, in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low-cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, "Mapping World Vegetable Trade," or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more.
1: And significant changes, which then just become the norm, that like generations following, no, no different is incredible. One thing I'd love to know more about from your perspective, but the the piece of I suppose it's nearly the opposite of what you hear people saying the whole fake it till you make it piece, which, but it sounds like that you were extremely honest with whether it was bosses, people around you, but also with yourself in terms of what you knew. And and so, and so I suppose, yeah, where, where did that learning come from? Or was that, that's just who you've always been?
0: Oh, I think that was bred into us as kids, uh, honesty and, um, uh, and speak, say your truth. Um, And I've always done that and it's got me into hot water in, in times. Um, but, you know, if if you believe in what you're saying at the end of the day, that actually pays dividends. And it has done for the whole of my career, um, just being upfront and, and very honest about what you know, what you don't know, and, um, and, and what your opinions are, and not fitting into the crowd um, necessarily. If, if your opinion fits outside the crowd, uh, then still having the strength of your convictions to stand up to that. And that was something that was very important um, as we transitioned into, as my head transitioned into regenerative agriculture and into holistic grazing. Um, and that process started while I was on the station in the Territory. And I we went from a carrying a beast to 100 acres to a beast to 35 acres. And I was measuring a lot of stuff. In the paddocks, you know, the, the grass yield and composition and all sorts of stuff right across different landscapes. And, and I found that within five years, the desirable perennial grasses were declining significantly in population. I was also able to relate through some really fancy computer work back in the mid 80s, um, relate individual grass species positively and negatively to animal production. So I knew then that these species that were contributing positively to animal production were also the species that were disappearing. And I I got people in to look at the problems and I, I can recall, you know, driving around with ecologists and saying, look, these, these plants are disappearing out of the ecosystem. Why? And, um, the answer I got back was, that's just normal. And I sort of, I didn't feel comfortable with the fact that desirable plants were disappearing out of the ecosystem um, in a very short space of time. And they were plants that I knew contributed to, to increase animal production. So, and, and I felt very uncomfortable about that. I didn't actually, I had no understanding of why. And then um, it was only a few years later that I ran into Stan Parsons, and he started talking about rest, and um, that the penny started to drop. Although still I'm a pretty slow learner sometimes, and it took a couple of years for me to really understand rest. And then, then I understood that the reason those plants were disappearing, even at very very low stocking rates, was lack of rest, uh, and so. To, the conventional wisdom at that point, and for many, many years after, was that the only thing that affects the composition of a pasture is the stocking rate, not whether you rest it or not. Um, and so then I had a, a real paradigm shift then around resting and grazing management, and that created um, enormous controversy in Australia because or again, all the research and uh, teachings at university was that you you continuously graze is is all you need to do, but you just need to do it at a lower stocking rate. Um, What I was learning was, and in the real world was that, well, if you do that at a lower stocking rate, you know, in another 10 or 20 years, you have to lower the stocking rate again. And then in another 20 or 30 years, you have to lower it again. And in the meantime, your animal production is going backwards. So I knew that that concept was wrong and uh, that we had to change that paradigm. And so the opposition to that was enormous.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. And so you just started to allude there to regenerative agriculture, which to me, it, it seems like it's only just become mainstream in the last few years. And, and so this is an area which I suppose out of just my own personal interest as well, I, re, I really want to dive into a bit more but so for our audience uh, I suppose yeah can you for someone who's never ever heard of regenerative agriculture before can you explain what the concept is about and where it's come from
0: well I think regenerative the word regenerative actually says it all to me um, it's firstly regenerating the health of soils the health of ecosystems and when you do that in a farming or grazing context that improves the animal production it improves the health of the livestock running there. When you do both of those things, that improves the profitability and that improves the well-being of the people running that business. And when you improve profitability and well-being, you improve the um, communities. And so the experience I've had is that once um, a lot of farmers and graziers actually start improving their profitability, one of the first things they do is go and employ somebody. Mm-hmm. And so you, we're bringing people back into the bush. So the regeneration starts with the ecosystem, but it's actually regeneration of people's attitudes and learnings. It's regeneration of businesses. It's regeneration of, of the sort of production systems that we run and then regeneration of communities follows on from all of that. So to me, it's a really big picture. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that I measure all of that, is an increase in soil carbon. So if I'm getting an increase in soil carbon um, and that's an outcome that's measurable, then I know that all of those other flow-on effects are actually going to happen.
1: And so as a pioneer in this space a year or decades ago, and, and you said that there was opposition as well, so when you start to come out with these different practices around the just the grazing practices and then you start to bring in new words into, I suppose, a very traditional industry as well. Like, What was it like in those early days? And I suppose we're an industry that wears our heart on our sleeve a lot of the time. Like, There can be some incredibly passionate people, which I can imagine it got quite ugly. What was, yeah, what was it
0: like? It did get very ugly and it was very lonely. Um, And at one point I had to make a decision because I actually didn't know in the beginning whether Stan Parsons and Alan Savory were right mm-hmm. or whether the DPI was right. And I had uh, a very senior guy from DPI approach approached me one day and he, he was a former boss of mine and I had a lot of time for him. And he, he said, I hear you're bringing uh, Parsons and Savory to Australia. And I said, yeah, well, I'm certainly bringing Parsons to Australia. And he said, well, um, we've got a pile of literature three inches deep um, on how they've destroyed landscape all over the world wherever they've been and, and he said we're going to run them out of Australia and if you get mixed up with them you're going to go down with them and that was a hell of a threat and they tried very very hard to put me out of business uh, and I'm just trying to start off in business um, and they're trying to put me out of business and I had to work out then who was right and who was wrong so they, he put enough doubt in my mind to think geez I um, Here's my whole future on choosing the right path here. And so I applied for a Churchill Fellowship and was very, very lucky to get one. And I went overseas and I studied cell grazing in the U.S. and uh, through southern Africa. And I very, very quickly worked out who was right. Um, There's absolutely no doubt um, that Parsons and Savory were correct and and that we needed to change our grazing systems. Um, but I had to then work out, well, how do I handle the opposition at home, which was still very, very severe. And, um, and I can remember sitting in a, in a hotel in Harare, waiting for a flight back to Australia at the end of my Churchill Fellowship and writing my report, thinking, how am I going to handle this? So I developed a strategy. And that strategy was that I would never try and convince people again that didn't want to listen. I would only talk to people who were prepared to listen and had an open mind. And that just removed all the pressure from me. I didn't ever bother trying to convert any of those people again. I didn't ever bother trying to um, do any research that tried to justify myself to anybody else. And what happened was that the producers got on board, Like uh, the farmers understood what I was saying, but scientists couldn't understand what I was saying. And that was a fascinating, Era. And there's still a bit of it around, by the way. Yeah. Um, so, But the reason farmers could understand it was they'd actually seen a lot of the things that we could describe were happening. Um, and, the, and now we're able to put a name to it. We were able to put a solution to it. And it was a relatively straightforward and simple solution. So farmers and graziers got on board very quickly and it just grew by word of mouth through the farming community. And I I think that the grazing industry actually is ahead of the the farming industries in terms of the changes now that, you know, in in, uh, 1989, when we first started with this, um, you could probably nearly count on one hand the people in Australia that were rotating livestock. Today, I would guess that it's over 50% of people with livestock are rotating. And that's a massive shift in only 30 years. They might not be doing cell grazing to the way we could do it if we go to the nth degree, but it's changing. Um, I think in the in the cropping industries we're at the early stages of regen, and it, in some respects it's harder. It's harder in the cropping industries than it is in grazing because you've got more at risk. Um, you know, in grazing it's actually pretty easy. You you just get out there and change your management, and everything improves from day one, and there's no backward step. You don't actually have anything at risk. Whereas when you start regenerative farming and cropping, for example, or horticulture, um, there can be a backward step, but um, the way I approach it is to not take a backward step. In, and the the analogy I use is that let's say we're we're doing conventional ag and we know that we want to change. We're using too much fertilizer, too many chemicals. We're not making any money the people that supply us everything are making the money and we're taking all the risk. And there's a lot of people waking up to that in, mm. the, in the industry. So you're sitting on this one side of what I would call a chasm or, or a valley or I call it the valley of death. And the fear is that if I step off the edge to get to the other side, which is regenerative agriculture, I'm going to crash into this valley of death and probably go broke. So, The answer to that is, well, well, how do we get across one side of the valley to another? And the answer is we build a bridge and we have a design and we know how we're going to get there. And then we do that steadily, knowing the outcomes of each step. And the first step really is what I call it. You know, it's the Hippocrates um, statement of first do no harm. Uh, And I think that's, that's where we need to start. Let's think about all the things we do in conventional agriculture that are doing harm and replace some of those um, rather than take them out. Let's just look at replacing them or, or lowering the level of harm. But that harm is to soil biology. Mm-hmm. And so if we shift our paradigms from chemistry to biology and then do less harm or or no harm to soil biology mother nature will actually just fix everything up herself and um and so you, if you go too fast or too hard or pull too many bricks out in a hurry you will crash into the valley of death but the idea is to get to the other side without doing that and many many people have done that or are on that journey and i think it's You know, a great analogy is that our soils in many cropping systems at the moment, they're they're like a person on crack. You know, they've got all these chemicals pumping into them which are actually breaking down their existing microbiome. Mm -hmm. And our soil system, our plant system, our animal system is no different from our human microbiome system. That if we break down the microbiome of any natural system, um, we're in trouble you know and uh and so a lot of our natural systems are in trouble because that's what we've done
1: yeah it's fascinating and this is the piece it was i was talking with so steve faulkner who he's a viticulturalist down here in victoria um and he was talking about oh i'm sorry I was talking with steve and then i was talking with a nutritionist out a few episodes before that and one episode we're talking about the relationship of gut health and obviously how microbiome affects the human system. And then Steve started talking about, he said, oh, he's a regenerative viticulturalist, but the system he uses, he related to it in terms of probiotics and antibiotics. And it was fat, like fascinating that he said, yes, sometimes I need to use chemicals. Sometimes we need to use fertilizers. They're the antibiotics. We give a quick shot and then it's the same way a person recovering it's all about building that balanced diet. And what I found fascinating one, maybe cause I'm a little bit simple when it comes to these things, but particularly from the science perspective was just like, they're all ecosystems and systems and there's a lot of similarities. And what excites me about particularly the, the regen movement in agriculture is people now further along the supply chain who may not understand when it comes to talking about agriculture science, like, it's relatable to them. And so now we can start to see a whole new bunch of stakeholders buying in and becoming interested because it's Mm. an area which they're fascinated by and it's actually something they can relate to.
0: Yeah, I think the uh, antibiotic and probiotic analogy is a great one. Mm. I'd probably extend it a little bit further and say that what's actually happening is it's like you stay on antibiotics for your entire life and you don't take any probiotics and eventually you'll kill yourself because you're, you're, you're wiping out your own microbiome. So, and I think that's essentially, so the first thing that you would do in that situation is actually stop taking the antibiotics. Um, but I totally agree that you do need those antibiotics as a standby. So if you have a significant infection, you need to stand on it with antibiotics and, um, but, you know, if the medical profession is well aware now that we actually have to reduce the amount of antibiotics we're using um, so that when we do really need them, we, we've, they'll work. Um, and that's also a great analogy in that a lot of the, the so-called antibiotics that we're using now in agriculture are no longer working like they would. So if you take mm. um, some of the herbicides that we use, uh, there's now about 490 Plants resistant to those herbicides, Um, and in in exactly the same way as our bugs become resistant to our antibiotics, and therefore they're not effective anymore. A lot of the chemicals we're using are uh, happening in exactly the same way. Uh, So, we've. But we do need sometimes we need those things because for us to produce food, and if you get a, you know, a disease outbreak in a food crop, if you don't actually stand on it in some way, then like take your antibiotic, then you won't have the food crop. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's a actually a great analogy. I think I've got to pinch it and use it. <laughs>
1: it's a, a ripper. I might say, uh, I'll, I'll link you into it. I'll grab a soundbite for it and send it across. It was, when he said it, it just was a light bulb moment. I was like, Steve, you, you're bloody onto something there. <laughs>
0: yeah, he's, he's spot on.
1: Now, the other topic, and so obviously you've, you, you've talked a lot about grazing and so the next piece which is i suppose when it comes to the social license of agriculture and what is of communities' concern is the emissions of agriculture but i suppose looking at that as well it's not just a one-dimensional issue people still need to eat but particularly ruminants and cattle in particular get painted in a very bad light and i was listening to you talking about the carbon cycle and so this was a I'm trying to, maybe you were on the, it was on the Tamania raw ag podcast. It could have been. And the way you were describing it, I found it really fascinating when you were talking about how the actual carbon cycle works and why animals are important to that. And so I I was wondering if, yeah, you're, you're able to, I suppose, explain that in a bit more detail in terms of, yeah, how, how we're measuring carbon. Yes. Beef cattle are, are emitters, but also, in context it would be great to, to get.
0: Well, I think that there's a false impression about um, particularly cattle. Um, and it's based on the, the way um, the Kyoto uh, protocols were set up originally. And they're based, they're based on engineering concepts where you look at carbon as being a linear thing so that you, whack coal into a power station and you burn it and the carbon dioxide goes off to the atmosphere. And that, <clears throat> if you look at it in the current time time frame, is actually linear. But the reality is that's circular as well, that carbon and that oil and any of those hydrocarbons that are in the soil actually came from the atmosphere via plants uh, and photosynthesis to become hydrocarbons. And we're just releasing them again in a different timeframe. So they are part of the carbon cycle, but it's a much, much longer cycle. Now, agriculture operates within a cycle. The carbon cycle is the process of of birth, growth, reproduction, death, and decay. And that happens to every living thing. So there's more carbon in the top metre of soils than there is in everything on the surface of the earth and in the atmosphere combined. Far out. So if you do the sums on that and you think, okay, we're emitting nine million billion tonnes a year. Mm -hmm. um, And we've got a 1500 billion tonne storage capacity in soils. um, So nine gigatons into 1500 gigatons is a very small ask. So soils can actually take with the right management and the right approach all the emissions that we emit every year. And not only that, have the ability to actually draw down carbon out of the atmosphere, some of that legacy load. So I firmly believe that soils are the key solution to where we sit right now in times of of climate change. So to come back and answer your question about cattle and, and emissions. So to come back to the carbon cycle, the animals are eating grass, which took carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Most of that carbon that goes into that animal stays as, as carbon within the animal as the animal grows. Some of it comes out the back end as carbon. Some is emitted as carbon dioxide. And some is turned into methane by a group of bugs in the room. So the animals emit a small amount of methane. Um, but the carbon that's, that's getting back to the atmosphere in carbon dioxide and methane out of the, uh, the animal came out of the atmosphere in the first place. And some of it might've only been put there a week ago or a month ago. So that cycle can be quite fast. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason that there's focus on methane is that a tonne of methane Mm -hmm. um, is equivalent to 25 tonnes of carbon dioxide in terms of its warming capacity. That's taking a very simplistic view to it because the half-life of methane is actually very short Compared to the half-life, half-life of CO two,
1: yeah, it's only seven years, I think, isn't
0: it? Yes, yeah, it's, it's quite short, um, whereas CO two can be a thousand years. So it's it's um, there's various figures around on that, so I don't like to quote them because it's. Just I'll quote them, <laughs> but, but it is significantly shorter. Um, now, but the thing that's not accounted for, <clears throat> so the when people talk about methane from livestock, they're taking a linear approach to. Accounting for it, mm-hmm. not accounting for where it came from <clears throat> or the carbon cycle or what would happen to it if the animal didn't eat it. So if we were growing forage of any so grass, whatever, right, and the animal comes along and eats that, and as a result of eating it, it emits some methane, quite a, a very small amount, by the way. Um, and now if we take the animals out of the system, what's going to happen? Well, that material is either going to rot and go back to the atmosphere as CO2 and methane, or it will be broken down by um, termites and go back to the atmosphere as CO2 and methane, or we'll burn it and it will go back to the atmosphere as CO2 and methane. So, my argument is there is no net difference in the amount of stuff that goes back to the atmosphere, whether you've got ruminants there or not and to me it's completely false accounting to not take account of the fact that some way or other that grass that grew and took carbon dioxide out of the air is still going to recycle and it's going to recycle with some methane so um the the other side of that coin though is that we can use ruminants and we must use ruminants actually there's no other alternative to increase carbon sequestration into the soil. By, by managing those plants correctly, um, we can start pumping carbon into the soil and hold it in the soil. And that's where we can take CO2 out of the atmosphere and put it to good use. Yeah. You know, carbon dioxide is not a toxin. It's actually something we breathe, we breathe out, we create, we use, we live off. Um, So what we need to do is find out how to turn it into a useful product. And the most useful thing we can turn it into is soil organic carbon. But we've got to have livestock in the system to be able to do that because of the way they interact with the plants and the way the plants need to be managed to be able to sequester carbon. Um, So I think that the ruminants generally get a bum rap. Now, some of that, some of it, if you're looking at CAFOs, for example, like uh, you know the high feedlot dairies and feedlots, beef feedlots. Um, now, contrary to popular belief, they actually produce a lot less less methane than animals that are grazing poor quality feed. Uh, so, but there's probably you know, uh, a carbon cycle involved in the life cycle of that in in, the, in generating the grain and carting the grain and carting the animals to it and carting them away, etc., and then removing the dome, et cetera. So there's a, yeah. it's got its own carbon cycle. But I think there is absolutely no doubt that remnants get a bum rap and they probably have not been properly accounted for in the uh, find... carbon cycle.
1: Yeah. And, and what I find interesting in this debate, I don't know, if it's a debate or not, I I just feel like we're, yeah, it's an argument as opposed to an actual constructive conversation really around it. But what, and I actually think it goes back to primary school thinking anyway, from my end. And it's, if, when it comes to the food web, let's say, okay, that ruminants, uh, hypothetically, that ruminants are the problem, let's take them out. But like a year three student could draw what a food web looks like from the ground up, you remove something and then, It's not just a one-dimensional problem. Everything else is going to be affected. And it's the piece is as well that it's it's a living ecosystem as well. So, yeah, I I find it fascinating where there's this, yeah, let's remove them. That's fine. Okay, do that. But (laughs) what is the actual impact? And I don't think anyone actually knows. It'd be significant. It'd be bloody scary.
0: Well, quite frankly, you'd have a much greater impact on the environment and the CO2 if you removed people instead of ruminants.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, Let's put it in context. It's not the ruminants that are the problem, it's people. It's Mm. the number of people, it's how we live our lives, it's the amount of carbon that we use um, to build our houses, to drive our cars, to fly in aeroplanes, to live the lifestyles that we live. Um, If we wanted to save the planet, but we'd just, turf out half the people really
1: yeah and we'd change our lifestyles on the back end of that too
0: we would so it's easier for for us to demonize something that can actually is not having the same impact that we are um Mm. than it is to demonize ourselves so i think you know we've always got to look at ourselves first
1: yeah and i'd love to so that leads to my next question is I'd love to know from your perspective, what you see, particularly in the 2020s, what you see as the biggest opportunity for agriculture?
0: Um, That's a really good question because I just spent a lot of last week actually thinking through the next 25 to 30 years and where agriculture is headed. Um, I see the next five years as being um, a significant increase in the information and the beginnings of transition into regenerative agriculture. That trend has started, but it's got a long way to go. Um, the, what will drive that is going to be carbon credits and environmental credits. Um, in the next decade, next five years, through to, to 2025 to 2030, uh, I see that uh, regen ag is starting to accelerate a lot more people doing it and are now being driven by the income coming in from things like soil carbon and biodiversity credits and uh, natural capital accounting and so on. Um, so I see that's a direction that's that's being taken. Now that will be driven by two things. Um, the first is money. There is a uh, 20 trillion US dollars um, lined up basically globally in funds that is looking to change the way we do things on the planet. So instead of, you know, a big chunk of that might have in the past gone into build steel mills and coal mines and roads and rail and stuff like that, that... um, A big chunk of that money in the future is actually going to be going into stimulating regen regen agriculture and moving into um, more renewable energy and all those sort of things. So So the financial markets will drive change and we won't have to wait for governments. Businesses is what will change and businesses run on money and it's the people that control the money that will start to control the direction that the world goes in. So you can forget about politics. They'll eventually catch up. The yep. second thing I think that will start driving it is, is interest and understanding from consumers that um, we want better quality food. We want food with some nutrient density We want to make sure that... Um, Our food's not contaminated with these antibiotics that we use in agriculture, Uh, to use that analogy again. um, I think so. That's a steady one. Um, The consumers think that organic is the answer to it all. Um, But it isn't because organic is simply the removal of the chemicals that we use in agriculture. But it doesn't necessarily and it hasn't necessarily helped the quality of the soil and improvement in the carbon and improvement in the the soil balance and therefore the quality of the plants that we produce. Generally, they'll certainly be better than than when you're pouring um, antibiotics on them, but um, they're not necessarily the best we can do in terms of food quality. So I think Regen Ag gives us more flexibility um, as farmers to focus on that food quality. Um, you know, our our mission, for example, um, is to connect farmers who we believe to be the most noble professionals in the world with their true purpose, which is producing healthy food. And, and I think that both the financial markets and the consumer market will be driving farm production, more and more towards healthy food and you can see that in some big companies globally now you know a company like mccain's for example globally have decided that they want to figure out how to produce regeneratively produced potatoes and there's a demand for some of their clients um, for that Uh, you've got general mills in the us um, now saying well we want to buy our grain from people who are farming regeneratively So I think that that trend has started and you'll see you've got McDonald's saying we want to buy meat from stuff which is sustainably grown rather than regeneratively grown. And and, uh, I've always used restorative or regenerative rather than sustainable as a word, because I think if we just sustain systems where they're at, we're going nowhere. We have to regenerate um, and restore.
1: There's a couple of things I, w- I want to ask you on that. One of them, and this is an area which I've always, well, always over the last few years, I've really wondered about when it comes to, um, look, yeah, basically how farmers get paid now, and this is, I suppose, a basic model, but essentially on a commodity product, it's a, a per kilo beef, it's a per ton of grain. But then the consumers are looking at nutritional density. And so what I find fascinating is like, the farmers aren't getting paid on improving macro or micronutrients and creating more value there for themselves. But that's what the consumer's demanding. And, and that's what I reckon it, the, the people I talk through through this, that's where like, I, I don't know what the answers are, but it, it's fascinating to think about.
0: Well, there is an answer. Um, and, that, and traditionally, consumers have never paid the full price of producing food what's paid the price is our environment. Farmers have had to mine our ecosystems in order to produce food for the price that consumers are prepared to pay for it. And, I mean, even if you go out and produce um, nutrient-dense food, you're not necessarily going to get paid for it, as you just mentioned. Yeah. So the solution is to pay farmers in a different way. The solution then is to fund so if, if a farmer is adding carbon to their soil, then let the consumers pay for the, for the carbon credits. And that might happen through their electricity bill, through their transport bills, through all sorts of ways where it's actually not even noticed. And that's the direction we're heading in. So then the farmers who are regenerative are actually going to get paid additional money for producing that better quality product. So the better quality product will be an outcome of better natural systems and more carbon in the system, for example, or more more biodiversity in the system. The farmers will actually get paid for those byproducts, which will then reward them for the quality of the food they're producing. And I think that's the system that's starting to evolve globally. Um, And it certainly evolving in Australia. And right now it's evolving at a great rate of knots. And um, and Australia actually leads the world in this whole area of soil carbon measurement and soil carbon trading. Uh, we're way ahead of the rest of the world. And now we get people uh, coming to Australia um, and ringing up and wanting to know what's happening here so that we can replicate it in other parts of the world.
1: Which uh, is exciting because we are a competitive bunch as well. So it's good when we're in front. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but if we don't uh, stay innovating in in this space, we won't stay in front for very long because mm. the rest of the world is watching. Um, and, in fact, we have got behind. Uh, well, not behind, but we've stopped the innovation and basically stopped this moving forward just through over-regulation um, yeah. and poor regulation. So I think that's something that uh, politically is being changed, certainly um The the current minister, uh, Angus Taylor, is doing a a tremendous job in freeing up this stuff. So this flow of additional income back to farmers through um, natural capital assets Mm. can actually start to happen. And uh, so that's the first time we've actually had a a minister that's really got in and started to try and free this up for farmers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I just want to jump back and... I hope it's not like a plug for. But what's when you were talking before about how so agriculture is a solution to a lot of our challenges, particularly when it comes to climate change and a healthier environment. And you were saying that it will people will pay for it in other ways, not just traditionally through food. And so what it, when I was trying to nut out like who a human of agriculture is, and what I was trying to look at is well basically anyone could be a human of agriculture. And so the definition I end up coming up with was a human of agriculture is anyone who's bettering themselves or the world around them through their influence of agriculture. And so whether that's in how they purchase or how they manage the land or how they market or talk about it, like everyone has the potential as long as they've got that opportunity or as long as they're willingly bettering themselves or the world around them. And so when you said that before, I was like, maybe like this is on the right track here. (laughs)
0: Oh, I think you are, and I, I think uh, the conversation we're having—if this um, conversation gets to consumers and people who are not necessarily linked to agriculture—and start to get a better picture of uh, what's possible in agriculture, uh, I think that that's a great thing. Um, and even if agriculture gets more of this message and starts to change as well, um, yeah. You know, I think one of the great things that COVID has done for the world is that it's got everybody starting to think about change and starting to think about the systems that we operate and how, you know, how do we start to change things the way we do things globally. And that's happening globally. Mm. Um, And it's certainly happening uh, very, very fast in the money markets. Um, You know, I... I wouldn't go a, a fortnight to three weeks now for several months without having a call from a, a merchant bank, a fund, a family office or an emitter. Um, wanting to know how they get involved in regenerative ag. Um, the, the trend is just amazing. I've never seen anything like it and, and I've been in this space for over 30 years.
1: Yeah, I love it. Oh, I could just keep asking you questions all day, but I'm mindful of your time and it is a Friday afternoon. So I've got one more, which I ask everyone who comes on the show. And basically it is, it's about how do we attract people and particularly young people into the agriculture industry. So I want you to imagine that. So you're talking to a, a group of year 10 or year 11 students and they're I suppose they're on that exciting transition where they've got all the opportunities in the world coming to them in, in the next few years but I'd love to know what your advice would be to them in terms of why they should think about agriculture as a potential career path or an area they should get involved in.
0: My my immediate response to that would be because agriculture is actually going to be the thing that can impact the climate within the next 30, 40, 50 years, significantly. Um, And I would explain that to them in exactly the same way I explain it to farmers in that um, our landscape is an ecosystem. uh, And and when we're farming, we're farming an ecosystem. And what I've I've seen with land managers over 30-odd years is the thing that excites them most is to understand how that ecosystem works and how they interact with it. And it's not complex. Well, it is complex, but you can break it down to something quite simple. And um, and I think that understanding that and that then that linkage between the ecosystem, food production, and then science and excitement there is so much potential and so much exciting things. And agriculture is not just about growing stuff or pushing cows around a the paddock, there is so much technology and so many areas that you can get involved in um, now that it's just, it's a, in a very exciting and incredibly open field. And the thing that makes it exciting for the next generation is if they can get in and study regenerative agriculture and then work in regenerative agriculture, whether that's somewhere in the supply chain, whether it's in the production chain, anywhere at all, or in the science or in the advisory end, there are so many places you could end up. And um, and it is it is one sector in Australia where there is more jobs than there are people to fill them. So if you, you know, if you really want to get to a university and come out the other end with a job, get into agriculture.
1: I love it. Well Terry, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us on the podcast. It's been fascinating and I can't wait to chat with Stacey in the coming weeks as well.
0: She's looking forward to it.
1: Well, I hope you got as many takeaways as I did out of that chat with Terry McCosker. I think for me, a couple of the key quotes that came out of it and the whole talk was filled with amazing advice was, we don't want any preconceived ideas seems to be the notion that that came through and just the power that there is in actually confronting the unknown. I also love Terry's optimism when it comes to that there's nothing that can't be fixed if we put our mind to it. I think what I also took away from Terry today was that the power that there is and just how integral honesty is in any business or organisation, I think we hear the saying very often that fake it till you make it, but I think when he was talking about approaching the right people and getting the right people on board his quote around i didn't try to convince anyone that didn't want to listen i'd only talk to people who wanted to listen and had an open mind that took the pressure off me so many good takeaways i'd love to know what you guys got out of it you can rate review and subscribe to the humans of agriculture podcast we'll be coming to you every wednesday as we did last year and excitingly in the next couple of weeks we're bringing up our one year anniversary on the podcast look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane, and I'll chat to you next week.